Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Good morning, beautiful people. I want to thank you for joining me here this morning on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. This is Prison Focus Radio, and I am your host, Nube Brown. We are going to spend the hour with two revolutionaries, two political prisoners, one an elder, Louis C. Powell Jr., also known as LP, and young Kwame Shakur, Lil Beans of Prison Lives Matter, And we are going to be reading from both of their publications. Uh, Prison Lives Matter just put out their uh, journal in the spirit of Nelson Mandela, Volume 1, Spring of 2021. Not just put out. uh, It was put out in spring of last year. Uh, But And we are going to... I'm going to be reading some excerpts from Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War, uh, California Prison Politics, by Lewis C. Powell Jr. This is going to be a very exciting uh, morning, I think. 
Uh, and I, I hope for you, I hope it will be inspiring. And then I will encourage you and give you the um, information to get these two publications. All right. Um, stay, stay tuned. Stay with us. We are about to get started. All right, we are going to go ahead and get started with Lewis C. Powell Jr.'s book, Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War, California Prison Politics, because, of course, we honor and revere him as an elder, and and so he will get um, first on stage. Let me tell you a little bit about Lewis Powell, which is right on the back of his book. So I am going to be... Everything that I you will be hearing from me will be his words or the words of other elders that he uh, other people that he has invited in to uh, participate in the creation of this book. Lewis Powell is in his thirty fifth year of incarceration in the California Department of Corrections. Twenty eight of those years were spent in solitary confinement in California's notorious SHU Security Housing Unit. The SHU is a prison inside of a prison that is reserved for those who have been, quote, validated as gang members or for those who commit serious prison infractions. In 2011, Powell took part in the historic hunger strikes, which were a protest against the inhumane SHU program. At the time of this publishing, Powell is 70 years old and has spent over half his life in prison, despite consistently meeting all of the requirements for parole. We'll begin with the foreword. My relationship with Lewis Powell, Sani, dates back to nearly 40 years. We connected shortly after his release from prison following a nine-year stint. Our connection was based on our shared political ideology and a firm commitment to be part of the solution addressing the political, social, economic ills that have continued to plague African communities. We regularly met with other comrades for political discussions, but more often than not, it would be the two of us hanging out together. It was during those times that we had the opportunity to develop a strong bond beyond the superficial acquaintance, learn about each other's strengths, meet each other's families, and take long road trips between Southern and Northern California. Sani, much like myself, did not talk a lot, and he is a very serious individual with keen observation skills. Some of the things I learned about him during our time together is that he has a strong family orientation and believes that it is the man's responsibility to be the breadwinner and provide for the family, which proved to be the frustrating, which proved to be frustrating for him at times because of the lack of good employment opportunities for ex-felons. I also observed the love and patience he displayed for his son who had a learning disability. I would often reflect on his display of affection when I became a father years later and had a son who was diagnosed with autism. When Sani fled to Texas with his family to avoid false criminal charges, it was his commitment to ensuring that his children's continued education did not suffer, which eventually led to his capture, extradition, and ultimate conviction for which he has currently been confined for over 30 years. A couple of other things that I recall about Sani that stands out is his principles related to our shared commitment to the care and liberation of African people and solidarity with all oppressed people, is that he took his responsibilities very seriously. Once during a road trip, we encountered a young couple with a baby and their car was disabled. Sani suggested that we take them home even though they lived a distance in a different direction from our destination. Another time, in preparation for a road trip in which Sani was going to do solo because I had other obligations, I was outside changing tires on the car he would be driving while he was in my parents' house resting. It was near midnight, and I was accosted by two pigs patrolling which two pi- pigs patrolling, which led to a heated argument related to their harassment. My mother happened to observe the incident and rushed out of the back door, appearing out of the dark to confront them, which startled both of them. Unbeknownst to me, at the moment, Sani had woken up and stealthily positioned himself behind the wall of the backyard, prepared to act, had either of the pigs pulled their weapons. There are many anecdotes I could share about Sani to demonstrate his keen observation skills and courage to address challenging topics that many would rather be safe or liberal and ignore, or unaware of, that makes him uniquely qualified to author this book. Unlike many of us who first whose first introduction 
or political baptismal resulted from our incarceration because of a social or economic offense. As a 16-year-old youth and member of the Malcolm X Foundation in Compton, California, Sani learned about the historical context of racism, capitalism, and imperialism, and its relationship to the devastation of African nations, its people, and other oppressed nations before he was incarcerated. Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War, California Prison Politics, gives the reader a front row seat to some of the things that happened within the confines of California prisons, which many would otherwise be unaware of, including many California prisoners who naively believe that staying to oneself and just doing their time will keep them safe. This book is definitely worth reading. Jitu Sadiki. And now, the author statement. The Chronicles of Lewis C. Powell Jr.'s Chronicles describe the history of a secret dirty war that took place inside of California's prison reform movement in the 1970s. These chronicles are a conversation that is four decades overdue. The prison reform movement was psychopolitical, and it was an unfamiliar arena for all. It is my intention to discuss unrecorded history as factually as possible. While I was never an advocate of reformism, I did use my knowledge of mass struggle to help particular activists to centralize small circles and coordinate objectives. The New Left movement was the sole prop propagator of prison reform in which did include, at the time, Governor Brown in the 1970s. And when he signed into law the Prisoner's Bill of Rights, known as Penal Code Section 2600, the new leftists provided much-needed material and financial support with which to conduct a protracted, constitutionally protected struggle against institutionalized racism by the way of prison reform measures and languages. It made cosmetic changes to institutionalized racism in the prison system, but the system remained intact. Over the course of the movement's history, I came into socio-political intercourse with highly influential black, white, and Mexican prisoners who were engaged in extremely dangerous prison politics. The white and Mexican racial classes became disenchanted with the prison movement. Their reason was based on psychopolitical reasoning that was tied into underground prison economy of commerce. All movements must have its cannon fodder, of which it happened to be blacks during the 1970s. The fact being that blacks had more at stake than merely economics in command. The prison movement emerged during the governorship of Ronald Reagan. It was a new phenomenon inside of California's prison commerce, and it was an opposing force. The reaction from under the governorship of Reagan was to establish an unprecedented counterintelligence program within the California Department of Corrections. The Special Service Unit of the CDC would be activated in 1972 to safeguard and help expand prison commerce. Through these chronicles, I want readers to understand the contradiction faced by activists on both sides of the prison walls. And just importantly, I want to correct misconceptions as well as misinformation propagated by counterintelligence agents, which caused deaths and injuries and that smeared the reputations of many. Every activist's experiences and contributions were significant and distinct, despite the fact that most did not understand the four causes of mass struggle behind enemy lines within the hidden strategic role of the passive collaborators in their assignments of infiltrating operatives of prison intelligence. Clarify cleanup. The movement could not have taken two steps forward regardless of the degree of activism. It was a whirlpool of political violence that would break the back of the majority. There were no scripts to adhere to. Some individuals made rules every step of the way. Some were able to enforce rules, and others were not. My conscience would never allow me to subordinate myself to personality-centered or authoritarian leadership, reactionary elements found in numerous leadership circles inside the prison movement. I came across only one principle— the laissez-faire leadership style that allows particular individuals the freedom of action to achieve results. For me, it was never about positioning myself in a pecking order or competing for a high-ranking title. I sought only to draft the social contract of ideo-political discourse to maneuver the misleadership of reactionaries from one point to another in a political game of blind man's bluff. Everyone wears a blindfold which makes for an even playing field while engaging in this consciousness-raising struggle. St 
Struggling towards the highest form of prison politics meant working to abolish institutionalized racism. The prison movement was prison politics at its highest stage. With the abolition of institutionalized racism, it would then be theoretically possible to eliminate racial wars, prison gangs, and incapacitating punishment. I was the architect of the first black intelligentsia, in other words, a fifth corner inside the California prison system during the 1970s. I entered prison with a special genius for theoretical work and the sort of creative imagination that allowed me to understand and see beauty in counterintelligence. The fifth cornerists became embedded inside the prison reform movement. While our existence was unknown and not susceptible to infiltration, virtually no one suspected that prison reformers were engaged in a complex theoretical analysis with the potential to turn possibility into reality, as in game planning. The fifth cornerists included passive collaborators working in prison officials' offices as their personal clerks. This infiltration allowed us to gather information while working in collaboration with an outside group of white activists calling the Prison Crisis Committee, called the Prison Crisis Committee, which was made up of several civil rights attorneys and their investigators. In 1975, I released a report to them regarding at least a dozen prison guards at Dual Vocational Institution, DVI, in Tracy, who were members of the California Nazi Party, whose main headquarters was in Tracy, California. It took a few weeks for Public Conduct Code PCC investigators to confirm the report, as well as to gain the trust of several Nazi prison guards living in or around the city of Tracy, California. The fifth cornerists came up with a strategy of psychopolitics at a level that most would not have understood, nor would they agree with. It was never the fifth cornerists' intention to destroy the California Nazi Party. The strategy was to uncover the Nazi Party's psychopolitics game plans for black prisoners, black prison guards, and the black community of Stockton, California. Toward the end, we had no choice but to allow some things to play out while sabotaging other things that by 1976 posed a serious threat. The fifth cornerists had even recruited two white Tracy prisoners to join the prison the Tracy Prison Nazi Party, saying that infiltrating produced invaluable intelligence. I hope to enlighten readers unfamiliar with prison movement history and the political experiences of activists on either side of the prison walls. This history is a shared experience which belongs to new left activists as well who have paid the ultimate price. This must be acknowledged. There has never been any critical understanding of what those in the movement experienced I trust these chronicles will take readers below the surface and behind enemy lines of the prison phenomenon. So many past accounts are based on appearance and not on the unseen essence. Appearances were used to deceive, to manipulate, to make it hard to distinguish the real from the apparent, sacrificing and being an integral part of the phenomenon at play, knowing when to make strategic movements of thoughts, of actions and activities. The making of political enemies inside the prison movement was more dangerous than the counterintelligence traps of the special service unit. Prison is very chaotic. The prison reform movement was more chaotic, but it was the cover I needed to buy time for helping to develop social consciousness amongst a chosen few. I had no problem working inside of chaos, for I could see inside of chaos the existence of order. The rewards for me would be knowledge. The knowledge needed to bring into play with others a new phenomenon. Of course, it took putting my life on the line, time after time, in a situation of what I can only describe as a game of blind man's bluff. By 1976, I was becoming well-known within the theater of Tracy Prison Gladiator School. I had become a teacher in the arts of struggle and was considered to be a threat to cutthroats who understood only the philosophy of the greater force, but lacked its application. Entering prison in the 1970s, as a first-timer, I had a social consciousness that would serve me well behind enemy lines. It gave me certain advantages over others who claimed revolutionary authenticity, while in truth they were merely militants. I, however, was well-versed in democratic centralism and understood dialectical materialism and the use of its laws. Prison would help me master the science of war psychology. Most importantly, it would help me understand the philosophy of the greater force. Personal material interests dominated too many prisoners thinking and became a detrimental element within the prison movement. 
incarcerated felons never made the transition from economics in command to politics in command. It allowed trifling and vices dictated movement activities, associations, motivations, and led to the compromising of basic principles. It was the right set of circumstances for the state's special service counterintelligence unit to exploit. It made no difference if any one function under moral incentives the fact that politics in command wasn't at play inside the movement. Economics in command made it a cakewalk for the smear campaign to be very effective, and once the smear campaign was started against an individual, it had an avalanche effect. The prison reform movement should be approached in its historical context. The movement was consumed by the vortex of political disorder, and the activists would scatter into different directions. For those chosen few who stood firm, it was the law of transition from quality coming into play. The prison reform movement did achieve its objectives of reform with phone call, 2600 prisoners' bill of rights coming into play. With that in mind, understand it was impossible for the movement to transform itself into a revolutionary movement. Nevertheless, the negation of its phenomenon did emerge, of which it created the conditions for a new consciousness. If I hadn't had moral laws to govern my own behavior, I wouldn't have been free from the corruption of the prison culture nor the effectiveness of counter manipulation. My behavior wasn't based on the prison trappings nor immediate gratification nor personal interest. Before my peers would allow me free expression inside Tracy, Soledad, and San Quentin prisons, I had to earn it, and I earned it by employing an understanding of fear, fraud, and force. My behavior was seen as being honest, a man of justice, revolutionary, and dangerous. Those things gave me a free expression to criticize, to educate, and to stand in dissent. The limitation imposed on the community of captives brought into play a new phenomenon that the world hadn't known. Black prisoners dared to form a movement inside the belly of the beast. We attempted to put forth the idea that if white and Mexican prisoners would participate, then the possibilities for a livelihood and rehabilitation would become a reality. Prisoner reform, excuse me, prison reform would be a reward of immediate gratification for California prisoners. The super political police would make sure that prison reform succeeded in reducing any revolutionary ideals of ending institutionalized racism. Plus, prison reform cannot transform the economics of incarceration. It could be used as a political weapon to safeguard prison commerce. By allowing prison reform to advance, it would divert revolutionary consciousness. The prison reform movement was made up of a loose federation of black groups and individuals inside of prison and made up of a loose federation of white groups and individuals outside of prison, and each saw their interests differently, in particular, the inside blacks. And when they felt the movement no longer served their interests, they splintered off or committed acts of treason, especially several well-known political prisoners, turning out to be amongst the worst treasonists under the psychopolitical the psychopolitics of prison commerce. The greatest good of the greatest number was wishful thinking. The criminal mentalities made it really easy for agents to sow distrust, to bring into play treason, armed strife, assassination, sabotage, and mass snitching. A lot of social shortcoming was the result of the movement participants unwilling to identify contradictions. Because to identify contradictions... There is a responsibility of pursuing a course of action that will resolve it. There were internal and external contradictions, each having its own distinct identity. If it wasn't for the old and new social relations that I cultivated, I wouldn't have survived most of the overwhelming contradictions that I came face to face with. Contradictions were the result of engaging in underground politics inside the prison theaters. I learned early on that the reform movement could be very dangerous and there was no such thing as a peaceful development of prison reform. The very notion of prison reform was powerful and the human lives that would be lost was an expensive price to pay. California's prison, for, California's prison system was known for its racial riots and wars. At least one-third of the racial riots between the years of 1960 to 1980 were orchestrated by white prison guards. It was economics in command that drove prison guards into inciting riots, always against black prisoners. Racial riots, wars, assaults, and murders led to overtime work, all of which served the essential need of prison guards and their families under the fraud of prison security and law and order. There were material incentives. 
labor incentives, and personal incentives behind prison guards triggering racial riots that lasted years. Besides economics, it was the psychopolitics of racism. The racists, irrationalists, and chauvinist guards were able to dictate activities, association, motivation, and compromising of principles set forth in the convict code. The convict code read, one, mind one's own business. Two, don't write a check your ass can't cash. Three, no snitching. Four, avenge a wrong. Five, don't prey on the weak. Six, see nothing, know nothing. Seven, don't go for fried ice cream. The prison theaters were the right set of circumstances for prison guards to employ prisoner shot callers to betray their racial brothers by leading them into racial wars. There has never been any time during the prison reform movement, ERA, that a shot caller couldn't be recruited by guards. In fact, generally, all it takes is the right incentives to turn the shot caller into jump-starting a riot. The prison guard union, with its massive resources, was very successful in helping to transfer California prison contradictions to the county jails, youth authority facilities, high schools in Los Angeles, and the streets of south-central Los Angeles, dysfunctional black Mexican communities. Domestic street gang terrorism can be traced back to the prison theaters of California. The incentives for the Peace Officers Association would be bonuses, supplemental income, higher wages, overtime work, full-time employment for their family members, state contracts for their relatives, friends, small businesses, home ownership, immunity, crusade against whites, uh, crusades against non-whites. As far back as the 1960s, the economists were predicting that between the years of 2020 to 2045, the white Californians will be a minority of the voting population in the state, and the whites stand the chance of being the less dominant voting force in the three branches of state government. And if that happens, they will lose control over the political economy and its distribution. The economists also predicted that by the turn of the 21st century, black Mexican voters will constitute a majority if they establish a political alliance. Prison guards have set out to do their part in creating criminal conspiracies that would affect any economic and political alliance between non-whites by way of domestic street gang terrorism of racial wars. It was impossible for me to use my influence to help suppress racial riots from transitioning beyond the prison walls to society. During my time inside of Tracy Prison's solitary confinement units, I started off as the sole political ideological teacher of maturity. I saw potential in several blacks. I didn't care about anything but fraudulent social-political relations with the rest of my racial brothers. They weren't extremist about their political education. So many were blindsided by the frivolous things that it would have been that would have been a waste of energy in attempting to raise their social consciousness. Nevertheless, they had a major role to play without giving fidelity to the cause. The movement needed cannon fodder. Prison commerce is a multifaceted weapon that uses reform to further handicap those lacking social consciousness. Knowledge of this, the phenomena inside the prison theaters was the key for me to transcend the limits of prison politics. My free thinking at times became hazardous while creating some dangerous black political enemies who had no idea that I was of their stead. But the appearance I projected was one of a different ideological school. The Special Service Unit of the CDC, along with the Postal Inspector, intercepted a letter at a San Francisco mail drop that was routed out of San Quentin Prison Notorious Adjustment Center in early 1977. The contents of the letter was co contracting a hit against me by the ideologists of revolutionary nationalism. SSU was so convinced that the letter would send me into flight like Stokely Carmichael, that they let me read it. I didn't give SSU a clue that I knew the letter to be authentic and not a counter-intel ruse. I had twice been warned by the revolutionary nationalists to keep my opinion to myself. I freely admit that between 1975 and 1978, I had become so opinionated that it seemed to rub the revolutionary nationalists in Tracy Soledad Folsom and San Quentin the wrong way. Plus, it was preventing them from recruiting among the black prisoner class. Of course, I was not behaving recklessly. What I was doing was by design a psychopolitical strategy in motion that any mistake along the way would cause me to suffer serious injury or death. I was armed with faith in my abilities. Plus, 
I did not fear the death of a thousand cuts. The ideologists of black nationalism took notice that I had become a target of their ideological enemy. I was a free agent and thinker by all appearances whose thoughts couldn't be suppressed by death threats. The reactionary black national capitalists allowed me free reign to teach and train their cohorts. My strategy of infiltration had worked. For nearly three years, I had trained political cadres. The SSU FBI used the ideologists of black nationalism to wage war against the revolutionary nationalists who were socialists. In or about March of 1978, the FBI counterintelligence unit left the CDC. They felt they had achieved they felt that they achieved their objectives of smashing the revolutionary nationalists. Only a handful remained in the state of California, and they were held inside San Quentin Adjustment Center. Their formation had been annihilated, especially outside of prison. Shortly after, the FBI counterintelligence agents congratulated themselves for a job well done without any apparent ties to the fallen revolutionary nationalists who wanted me dead and had even made two attempts to assassinate me. I declared in May of 1978, in the name of of Tony Gibson, Bunchy Carter, and Fred Hampton, I issued the Black Nationalist Central Committees of Seven Generals an ideopolitical death blow by surrendering over professionally trained cadres who were disguising themselves as black nationalists, but they were actually revolutionary black nationalists. The revolutionary nationalist camp within a few months was nearly 2,500 strong. In 1979, I would be transferred to San Quentin Adjustment Center and the FBI counterintelligence unit re-entered the CDC to wage a dirty war against the revolutionary nationalists who had transformed into revolutionary black nationalists equivalent to new African revolutionary nationalists. All right, if you have just joined us, we are, I am Nube, the host of Prison Focus Radio here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5, have been reading... um, the the forward and the author's statement of a book written by Lewis C. Powell Jr., Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War, California Prison Politics. I failed to mention that this is the unabridged, unedited version. So, um, but this book is available, and I will tell you where to get it um, at the end of the show. But I do want to read to you uh, the blurb on the back. Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War details the experiences of Lewis Powell, a.k.a. LP, who has served 35 years of a 15-year-to-life sentence in the California Department of Corrections. The information in this book comes from LP's direct knowledge, personal experiences, training, and careful examination of the facts surrounding historical occurrences of the turbulent years of the 1970s in California. The Chronicles explores the LP's findings of lies, misinformation, deceptions, and exploitation that occurred inside the California prison reform movement. The Chronicles are meant to create dialogue, educate, stimulate, and protect. Political struggle is a very dangerous occupation, especially behind enemy lines and for those outside of prison engaged in opposition to mass incarceration. The shield of legality isn't recognized by the political police who use dirty tricks and violence to disrupt and destroy the humanitarian cause of the struggle for freedom. We are going to take a quick musical break with um, Jill Scott's Sweet Justice, and then we're going to come back and read from Prison Lives Matter, the journal in the spirit of Nelson Mandela by Kwame Shakur.
Thank you, Jill Scott, for that. All right, we are going to get uh, right into Prison Lives Matter, talking about Kwame Lil Beans Shakur, who is also the co-founder of the New African Liberation Collective. The other co-founder is Shaka Shakur. We're going to focus on Kwame today uh, because uh, he is in the midst of creating a documentary, and his mother is here, Kelly Oxendine. Uh, all the way from Indiana, and she has been with us. Um, just, it's been beautiful having her here with us, uh, really feeling the spirit of Kwame with us as well, even though he is, of course, behind enemy lines in an Indiana prison. And um, so we are going to, I would like to read to you first a little bit about Kwame uh, Lil Bean Shakur and then I'm going to read to you the mission statement and the New African Declaration of Independence. But please visit the website of New African Liberation Collective at newafricanliberation.org. Of course, African is spelled with a K. So here on the site, uh, Kwame Bean Shakur, born in Terre Haute, Indiana, Kwame Lil Bean Shakur is a new African revolutionary nationalist currently held captive in the Indiana Department of Correction. Serving 110 years after being railroaded by corrupt prosecution hand-in-hand with his own defense attorney, Kwame has spent his time revolutionizing himself and serving his fellow prisoners as well as his Terre Haute community. In his own words, he has transformed from the criminal lumpen mentality to the revolutionary class conscious mentality with the help of NALC co-founder Shaka Shakur. Then it NALC, under his leadership, has carried on an act of resistance to the colonial and genocidal prison institution. He has guided the NALC in branching its activity from beyond the walls and into the new African community outside as well. He has spent the last three years organizing for new African self-determination in Terre Haute and is currently spearheading an effort to build a new social center in his old neighborhood. 
you can write to Kwame at uh, Kwame Shakur, Michael Joyner, 149677, that is his uh, prison number, Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, P.O. Box 500, 6908, South Old U.S. Highway 41, Carlisle, Indiana, 47838. You can also email Kwame at Kwame, that's K-W-A-M-E dot Shakur, S-H-A-K-U-R, at yahoo.com. Okay, the first line of the mission statement. NALC, New African Liberation Collective, is a new African revolutionary nationalist organization. We have launched this organization in an attempt to seize better control over not only the quality of our lives, but better control over the path and direction we would like to see our lives take. And lastly, before we get into uh, Prison Lives Matter, the New African Declaration of Independence. We, the black people in America, in consequence of arriving at a knowledge of ourselves as a people with dignity long deprived of that knowledge, as a consequence of revolting with every decimal of our collective and individual beings against the oppression that for 300 years has destroyed and broken and warped the bodies and minds and spirits of our people in America, in consequence of our raging desire to be free of this oppression, to destroy this oppression wherever it assaults mankind in the world, and in consequence of our indistinguishable determination to go a different way, to build a new and better world, do hereby declare ourselves forever free and independent of the jurisdiction of the United States of America and the obligations which that country's unilateral decisions to make our ancestors and ourselves paper citizens placed on us. We claim no rights from the United States of America other than those rights belonging to human beings anywhere in the world. And these include the right to damages, reparations due us for the grievous injuries sustained by our ancestors and ourselves by reason of the United States' lawlessness. Ours is a revolution against our oppression and that of all people in the world. And it is a revolution for a better life a better station for mankind, a sure harmony with the forces of life in the universe. We therefore see these as the aims of our revolution. To free black people in America from oppression. To support and wage the world revolution until all people everywhere are so free. To build a new society that is better than what we know now and as perfect as man can make it to assure all people in the new society maximum opportunity and equal access to that maximum, to promote industriousness, responsibility, scholarship, and service, to create conditions in which freedom of religion abounds and man's pursuit of God and or the destiny, place, and purpose of man in the universe will be without hindrance, to build a black independent nation where no sect or religious creed subverts or impedes the building of the new society, the new state government, or the achievement of the aims of the revolution as set forth in this declaration, to end exploitation of man by man or his environment, to assure equality of rights for the sexes, to end color and class discrimination while not abolishing salubrious diversity and to promote self-respect and mutual respect among all people in the society, to protect and promote the personal dignity and integrity of the individual and his natural rights, to assure justice for all, to place the major means of production and trade in the trust of the state to assure the benefits of this earth and man's genius and labor to society and all its members, and to encourage and reward the individual for hard work and initiative and insight and devotion to the revolution. In mutual trust and great expectation, we the undersigned, for ourselves and for those who look to us but who are unable personally to fix their signatures hereto, do join in this solemn declaration of independence and to support this declaration and to assure the success of our revolution, we pledge, without reservation, ourselves, our talents, and all our worldly goods. The New African Liberation Collective. All right, I am now going to read from Prison Lives Matter, Journal in the Spirit of Nelson Mandela, 
Volume 1, Spring 2021. Revolutionary Greetings by Kwame Bean Shakur. As always, I come in the vision, pursuit of land, independence, and the release of all political prisoners, prisoners of war. For six years, the New African Liberation Collective, NALC, has worked with other cadre formations within the New African Independence Movement, NAIM, to restore unity and establish Frolinon, Front for the Liberation of the New African Nation, in order to develop a national strategy that would set forth programs for decolonization, instilling self-determination into our communities. We overstood that this collective organizing is needed to eradicate the fragmentation and sectarianism that continues to exist when we operate in dozens of splinter groups spread out across the country. If we as a captive neo-colonized nation have any serious aspiration to free the land and achieve self-government, then we must have national unity. During this time, I was asked by captives in so-called Virginia to establish a platform and political line for something called Prison Lives Matter. As I began to draw up a simple mission statement, I realized that this would be no different than countless other prison orgs in the U.S. struggling to be heard and seen by the masses. Similar to the work we were doing within the new African nation, we would need to establish a united front for prison captives that would strengthen the overall prison movement and garner the support of the outside revolutionary movement international community. This led me to establishing the PLM National Coordinating Committee in 2018. Since that time, we have made historical progress for the prison movements in terms of creating a foundation made up of the nation's leading formations that will sustain a national infrastructure. Carrying on the work of comrades Jalil Muntakim, who established the first national revolutionary prisoner letter, Arm the Spirit, Yaki, and the New African POW, as well as Ed Mead's countless newsletters over the past four decades, one of them being that's not in here, uh, this is a side note, one of them being California Prison Focus or Prison Focus Newsletter. We introduced the Prison Lives Matter in the spirit of Nelson Mandela's National Journal as a tool for cadre development and structure building. Although there has been a continuum of study and struggles inside NAIM and the prison movement over the course of 30 plus years, this is a quote, new movement that has emerged, meaning it's a new generation. We cannot attempt to just pick up where we left off during the end of our high tide. On both sides, NAIM and PLM have to rebuild our infrastructures, which begins with the development and training of cadres. Cadres are the ones to create and implement the programs needed to uplift and sustain our movement. Without cadres, we have nothing. This should be our main focus. We intend to use this journal as a way to further structure and solidify a united front by placing individuals with the right formations that fit their unique theory, form, and practice in order to achieve our ultimate goals. For example, placing conscious citizens of the Republic of New Africa with orgs like NALC or those familiar with civil criminal law with jail, with jailhouse lawyers speak and working to develop the Prisoner Legal Support Network. We can no longer afford to function in the splinter groups and reduce our own strength. Instead, the unity of tactics and strategy will be the only way to show the power of the people. Remember, we are our own liberators. Kwame Beans, National Director of PLM, Prison Lives Matter, co-founder and chairman of NALC. All right, we are going to continue with Prisoners' Lives Matter by Kwame Beans Shakur. Prison Lives Matter is a united front for political prisoners, prisoners of war, politicized individuals behind enemy lines and their organizations, as well as any outside formations in unison to abolish legalized slavery. The objective of PLM is to establish a national infrastructure within the overall prison movement that will allow us to implement a national strategy geared towards creating regional organizing committees on both sides of the wall. The ROCs will be put in place through the work of the current Prison Lives Matter, NCC, the National Coordinated Committee, which is made up of some of the nation's leading political prisoners and their outside support networks, including former PPs on the NCC, like Jalil Muntakim, who was liberated this year. It is the job of NCC members behind enemy lines to set forth political education classes and cadre development programs that will help transform their environment in captivity. These environments should serve as revolutionary universities, liberation schools, and cadre training centers so that upon re-entry into society, we will have capable cadre leaders ready to step into the movement and continue the work needed to build and rebuild 
our infrastructure. Incarcerated members of the NCC will network with other captives throughout their state in order to appoint field marshals capable of developing political education classes in each camp. This broadening of the PLM platform is what will essentially lay the foundation for the regional organizing committees. Outside members of the NCC will utilize the national network of support groups, families of incarcerated individuals, and other formations within the PLM movement to establish the ROCs. We have witnessed the difficulties of assembling national demonstrations with limited resources and calling on our leaders to travel around the country, making these things possible only once a year. This organizing strategy of the PLM-NCC-ROC will prove most effective in terms of forming regional vanguards that are able to mobilize boots on the ground and respond to the call of action when necessary. Respond to the call of action when necessary. Rather than organizing and mobilizing, the most important work of PLM both inside and out is to educate the political education of those held captive as well as comrades and the masses is a tool needed to build resistance and sustain a movement for liberation. Prison Lives Matter is not about, quote, reforming the existing system through this united front, which operates on an anti-racist capitalist imperialist line. We will strive to expose the prison industrial slave complex's hidden political and economical position of hierarchy within the United States empire, therefore raising consciousness to the contradictions that exist on class, race, and national oppression leading to the rise of mass incarceration, legalized slavery, and the building of more state and privatized prisons. The higher calling for the In the Spirit of Nelson Mandela campaign is one calling for an international investigation into the human rights violations of prisoners that exist within the United States. However, in order to garner the recognition and support of the international community, we must establish this infrastructure and national strategy on these shores. All right, we are going to hear from Kwame Shakur himself back in September of 2021 when there was a raid on the solitary housing unit that he is still on. All right, here we go. Uh, recently, there's been a significant uh, sort of raid on the on the on the unit uh, by a lot of Department of Corrections personnel and other police forces. Kwame, uh, could you speak to what's been going on? Yeah, so, uh, around Sunday or Monday, we got worried that they were going to be coming to doing a shakedown of some sorts. And it was the understanding it's going to be the routine yearly shakedown. But um, when they came through, they shut our phones off the GTL tablets, so we didn't have Wi Fi for three days. And they came in with over, I would say, at least 100 correctional officers parole officers from the street, as well as deputized Indiana State police officers in full wire tactical gear with the guns and the canine unit dogs. And they put the entire shoe, which is 288 people, on strip cell. And as this is going on, the first day, they put a memo into our mailbag inviting us to the major reason for this is that there will no longer be a difference between administrative segregation and disciplinary segregation. And for the people that's listening, the family members and outside comrades that don't know what that is, like disciplinary segregation is the amount of time that you get when you first come to the home. You know, like if you get a year for a side on staff or six months for phone or whatever, then you come and do that year and a half, and then you're supposed to go to population. With certain individuals, they'll place you on administrative segregation, saying that they don't feel that you're ready to go to population and you're still a safety and security threat to the institution. And so once you get placed on administrative segregation, you have the same privileges and rights as population. Um, 
captives, which is you know, the purchase food, commissary, hygiene, clothing, um, hygiene, and property. And it's always been like that for as long as I've been in the joint and for decades prior to that, you know what I'm saying? And on disciplinary segregation, we're not allowed to have shit. Like, we can't order real hygiene, we can't order clothes, we can't have food or any property. And the reason there's a difference between DS and AS is because DS is normally short-term. But AS is long-term segregation, and there's been litigation to the courts that says that after 60 days in solitary confinement, we have to be afforded, you know what I'm saying, these privileges, the famous population. And then, so during the shakedown, they come through and, and took all of our property out of there, took the whole shoe on strips there, took everything out of our cell, all the food, all of our hygiene, our clothing, um, our bedding, and put it back in our cells with nothing but a mattress. And um, they left us in there like that all day and night. And then when they brought us our property back the following day, it was the very minimum. All right, that is the end of our show, but I want to make sure that you know how to access uh, Prison Lives Matter and the New African Liberation Coalition um, and, you know, getting on mailing lists and things like that. So if you want to get on the mailing list and possibly receive one of these uh, journals, go to Prison Lives Matter, P.O. Box 9383, Chicago, Illinois, 60609. This is, you can get on, um, you can contribute articles, art, poetry, etc. Um, uh, and uh, be added to their mailing list. You, the other address is Prison Lives Matter, P.O. Box 134, Arvonia, Virginia, 23004. This speaks very clearly that he has got a lot of outside support. You can also email Prison Lives Matter at protonmail.com. You can always find Kwame Shakur um, on Instagram at Kwame, K W A M E underscore Shakur, S H A K U R. And also you can find him at Kwame.shakur at yahoo.com. All right. And now if you want to uh, purchase the book, by Lewis C. Powell, Jr., Chronicles of a Prison Dirty War, California Prison Politics. You can basically get this book anywhere. Barnes & Nobles, A-Books, Books, uh, you know, Google, Walmart, um, Alibris, uh, Baby Cakes Bookstack. This book is everywhere. It is on the shelves and ready for you to buy. So please get it if you want to get in touch with Lewis Powell. You can write to him at Lewis Powell. His number is B like boy, five, I don't like boy, B like black, 59864. He is at California State Prison, Lancaster, that's LAC, A2-105, P.O. Box 4430, Lancaster, California, and the zip code is, hold on one second here, 93539. Please write to this brother and, um, and also get in touch with Kwame Shakur as well. There's nothing like getting a mail from the people on the outside to know that um, they've been heard. It's as simple as that. All right. Um, and also, please visit www.prisons.org. That's the California Prison Focus website. You can read many more articles by Lewis Powell and other um, really heavy hitters um, in this movement um, and, and get other incredible information from the Prison Focus newsletter and also uh, their website. And also visit uh, Cage Universal, Minister King, also known as Pie Face. It's amazing music and, and um, doing great work. Um, and the San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper at sfbayview.com. Get ready for Work Week with Steve Seltzer.